Day 3 of Totus Tursus Novena for the Church in Europe With quotes from Blessed John Paul II's Apostolic Exhortation Ecclesia in Europa The Gospel of Hope entrusted to the Church of the New Millennium Awake and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the golden lampstands, the first and the last, who died and came to life, the Son of God. It is Jesus himself who speaks to his church. His message is addressed to all the individual particular churches and concerns their inner life which is at times marked by the presence of ideas and ways of thinking incompatible with the gospel tradition, frequently subjected to different forms of persecution, and, what is yet more dangerous, beset by troubling symptoms of worldliness, the loss of an earlier faith, and compromise with the logic of the world. Not infrequently, communities have lost their first love, One sees how our ecclesial communities are struggling with weaknesses, weariness and divisions. They too need to hear anew the voice of the bridegroom, who invites them to conversion, spurs them on to bold new undertakings, and calls forth their commitment to the great task of the new evangelization. The Church must constantly submit to the judgment of Christ's word, and live her human reality in a state of purification, so as to be ever more perfectly the bride without spot or wrinkle, adorned with fine linen, bright and pure. In this way, Jesus Christ is calling our churches in Europe to conversion, and they, with their Lord and by the power of his presence, are becoming bearers of hope for humanity. Europe has been widely and profoundly permeated by Christianity. There can be no doubt that in Europe's complex history, Christianity has been a central and defining element, established on the firm foundation of the classical heritage and the multiple contributions of the various ethnic and cultural movements which have succeeded one another down the centuries. The Christian faith has shaped the culture of the continent, and is inextricably bound up with its history, to the extent that Europe's history would be incomprehensible without reference to the events which marked first the great period of evangelization, and then the long centuries when Christianity, despite the painful division between East and West, came to be the religion of the European peoples. Even in modern and contemporary times, when religious unity progressively disintegrated as a result both of further divisions between Christians and the gradual detachment of cultures from the horizon of faith. The role played by faith has continued to be significant. The Church's concern for Europe is born of her very nature and mission. Down the centuries, the Church has been closely linked to our continent so that Europe's spiritual face gradually took shape thanks to the efforts of great missionaries, the witness of saints and martyrs, 
and the tireless efforts of monks and nuns, men and women religious, and pastors. From the biblical conception of man, Europe drew the best of its humanistic culture, found inspiration for its artistic and intellectual creations, created systems of law, and, not least, advanced the dignity of the person as a subject of inalienable rights. The Church, as the bearer of the Gospel, thus helped to spread and consolidate those values which have made European culture universal. With all this in mind, the Church of today, with a renewed sense of responsibility, is conscious of the urgency of not squandering this precious patrimony, and of helping Europe to build herself by revitalizing her original Christian roots. The entire Church in Europe ought to feel that the Lord's command and call is addressed to her. Examine yourself. Be converted. Awake and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. The need to do so is also born of a consideration of the present time. The serious situation of indifference towards religion on the part of so many Europeans the presence of many people even on our continent who do not yet know Jesus Christ and his church and who are not baptized, the secularism which poisons a wide spectrum of Christians who habitually think, make decisions and live as if Christ did not exist. Far from extinguishing our hope, make this hope more humble and more able to trust in God alone. It is from his mercy that we receive the grace and call to conversion. Although at times, as in the gospel episode of the calming of the tempest, it can appear that Christ is asleep and leaves his bark to be tossed by the tumultuous waves, the church in Europe is called to grow in the certainty that the Lord, through the gift of his Spirit, is ever-present and at work in her midst and in all human history. He prolongs his mission throughout time and makes the church a stream of new life coursing through the life of humanity as a sign of hope for all. In a context where a temptation to activism is also attractive at the pastoral level, Christians in Europe must continue to be a transparent image of the risen Christ, living in close communion with him. There is a need for communities which, by contemplating and imitating the Virgin Mary, the figure and model of the Church in faith and holiness, cultivate the sense of a liturgical life and of interior life. Before all and above all, they should praise the Lord, worship him and hear his word. Only in this way will they be able to partake of his mystery and live totally in relation to him as members of his faithful bride. In the face of recurring impulses to division and opposition, the different particular churches in Europe, strengthened also by their bond with the successor of Peter, must be committed to being a true locus and means of communion for the whole people of God in faith and love. They should therefore foster a climate of fraternal charity, 
lived with gospel radicalism in the name of Jesus and in his love. They should create cordial relationships, communication, shared responsibility and participation, missionary consciousness, concern and readiness to serve. They should be prompted by attitudes of esteem, acceptance and mutual correction, as well as of service and reciprocal support, mutual forgiveness and mutual edification. They need to set in place a pastoral program which, by maximizing all legitimate diversity, would also foster ready cooperation among individuals and groups. They need to revitalize participatory bodies as valuable instruments of communion, aimed at a united missionary activity, and enabling the emergence of adequately trained and qualified pastoral workers. In this way, the churches themselves, enlivened by the communion which is the manifestation of God's love, the ground and reason for the hope which does not disappoint, will be a more brilliant reflection of the Trinity, as well as a challenging sign which invites belief. If communion in the Church is to be experienced more fully, there is a need to make the most of the variety of charisms and vocations which increasingly converge on unity and can enrich it. In this regard, the new movements and the new ecclesial communities must abandon every temptation to claim rights of primogenitor and every mutual incomprehension, advance along the path of more authentic communion between themselves and with all other ecclesial realities, and live with love in full obedience to the bishops. But it is also necessary for the bishops to show them that fatherhood and that love which are proper to pastors, and to acknowledge, maximize, and coordinate their charisms and their presence for the building up of the one church. Thanks to an increase in cooperation between the different ecclesial bodies under the loving leadership of their pastors, the whole church will be able to present to all a more beautiful and credible face, a clearer and more evident reflection of the Lord's own face, and will then be able to give new hope and comfort both to those who seek her and to those who, even though not seeking her, nonetheless need her. In order to respond to the Gospel's call to conversion, we must join in making a humble and courageous examination of conscience, in order to acknowledge our fears and our mistakes, sincerely confess our slowness to believe, our omissions, our infidelities and our faults, Far from fostering an attitude of hopelessness and discouragement, the evangelical acknowledgement of one's sins will surely awaken within the community the experience of each one of the baptized. The joy of profound liberation and the grace of a new beginning which will enable it to set out with greater vigor upon the path of evangelization. Finally, the Gospel of Hope is also a forceful summons to conversion in the field of ecumenism. In the conviction that Christian unity corresponds to the Lord's Prayer, that they may all be one, and that it is essential today for greater credibility in evangelization and the growth of European unity, all the churches and ecclesial communities need to be assisted and encouraged to see the journey of ecumenism as a travelling together towards Christ and towards the visible unity which he wills, so that unity in diversity may shine forth within the Church as a gift of the Holy Spirit, 
the builder of communion. If this is to happen, there is need for patient and persevering commitment on the part of all, a commitment inspired both by genuine hope and sober realism, aimed at the enhancing of all that already unites us, sincere reciprocal esteem, the elimination of prejudice, knowledge and mutual love. Consequently, the pursuit of unity in order to have a firm basis cannot fail to include the passionate search for truth through dialogue and discussion which can acknowledge the progress already made and that consider it an incentive for even greater progress in resolving the disagreements which continue to divide Christians. Dialogue must continue with firm resolve, undaunted by difficulties and hardship. It should be carried on under different aspects, doctrinal, spiritual and practical, following the logic of the exchange of gifts which the Spirit awakens in every church. It should train the community and the faithful, and young people in particular, to experience moments of encounter and to make ecumenism rightly understood an ordinary dimension of ecclesial life and activity. Such dialogue represents one of the chief concerns of the Church, especially in this Europe, which in the last millennium witnessed the rise of all too many divisions between Christians, and which is today moving towards greater unity. We may not halt on this journey, nor may we turn back. We need to continue this journey in a spirit of trust, so that mutual respect, the search for truth, cooperation in charity, and above all the ecumenism of holiness, will not fail with God's help to bear fruit. Despite the inevitable difficulties, I ask everyone to acknowledge and appreciate, in love and fraternity, the contribution which the Eastern Catholic Churches can offer for a more genuine building up of unity, through their very presence, the richness of their tradition, the witness of their unity and diversity, the enculturation which they have accomplished in their proclamation of the Gospel, and the diversity of their rites. At the same time, I wish to assure once more the pastors and our brothers and sisters of the Orthodox Churches that the new evangelization is in no way to be confused with proselytism, without prejudice to the duty of respect for truth, for freedom, and for the dignity of every person. Serving the gospel of hope by means of a charity which evangelizes is the commitment and the responsibility of everyone. Whatever the charism and ministry of each individual, charity is the royal road prescribed for all and which all can travel. It is the road upon which the whole ecclesial community is called to journey in the footsteps of its master. In a special way, priests are called by virtue of their ministry to celebrate, teach and serve the gospel of hope. Through the sacrament of orders, which configures them to Christ the head and shepherd, bishops and priests must conform their whole life and all their activity to Jesus. By the preaching of the word, the celebration of the sacraments and their leadership of the Christian community, they make present the mystery of Christ, and in the exercise of their ministry they are called to prolong the presence of Christ, the one high priest, embodying his way of life 
and making him visible in the midst of the flock entrusted to their care. As men who are in the world, yet not of the world, priests are called in Europe's present cultural and spiritual situation to be a sign of contradiction and of hope for a society suffering from horizontalism and a need of openness to the transcendent. In this context, priestly celibacy also stands out as the sign of hope put totally in the Lord. Celibacy is not merely an ecclesiastical discipline imposed by authority. Rather, it is first and foremost a grace, a priceless gift of God for His Church, a prophetic value for the contemporary world, a source of intense spiritual life and pastoral fruitfulness, a witness to the eschatological kingdom, a sign of God's love for this world, as well as a sign of the priest's undivided love for God and for his people. Lived in response to God's gift and as a mastery of the temptations of a hedonistic society, it not only leads to the human fulfillment of those who are called to embrace it, but proves to be a source of growth for others as well. Celibacy is esteemed in the whole church as fitting for the priesthood, obligatory in the Latin church and deeply respected by the Eastern churches. In the present cultural context, it stands out as an eloquent sign which needs to be cherished as a precious good for the church. A revision of the present discipline in this regard would not help to resolve the crisis of vocations to the priesthood being felt in many parts of Europe. A commitment to the service of the gospel of hope also demands that the Church make every effort to propose celibacy in its full biblical, theological and spiritual richness. We cannot fail to see that the exercise of the sacred ministry today is fraught with many difficulties on account of the prevailing culture and the lessened numbers of priests, together with the increase of pastoral responsibilities and the fatigue which this can involve. Consequently, all the more esteem, gratitude and support is due to those priests who carry out with praiseworthy dedication and fidelity the ministry which they have received. To these priests, making my own the words of the Synod Fathers, I also wish to offer, with confidence and gratitude, my own encouragement. Do not lose heart, and do not allow yourselves to be overcome with weariness. In full communion with us bishops, persevere in your invaluable and indispensable ministry, in joyful fraternity with your brother priests, in generous collaboration with those in consecrated life, and with all the lay faithful. Together with priests, I also wish to mention deacons, who share, albeit to a different degree, in the one sacrament of holy orders, sent forth in service to ecclesial communion, they exercise, under the leadership of the bishop and his presbyterate, the diaconia of liturgy, word and charity. In their own way, they are at the service of the gospel of hope. Particularly eloquent is the witness of consecrated people. In this regard, acknowledgement must first be made of the fundamental role played by monasticism and consecrated life in the evangelization of Europe and in the shaping of its Christian identity. This role must continue to be played today, 
at a time when a new evangelization of the continent is urgently needed, and with the creation of more complex structures and relationships, it stands at a critical turning point. Europe will always need the holiness, prophetic witness, evangelizing activity and service of consecrated people. Attention also needs to be paid to the specific contribution which secular institutes and societies of apostolic life can make thanks to their aspiration to transform the world from within through the power of the Beatitudes. The specific contribution which consecrated people can make to the gospel of hope takes as its starting point several characteristics of the present-day cultural and social face of Europe. The demand for new forms of spirituality, now making itself felt throughout society, needs to find a response in the acknowledgement of God's absolute primacy, which consecrated people experience in their total gift of self and their permanent conversion in a life offered up as true spiritual worship. In an atmosphere poisoned by secularism and dominated by consumerism, consecrated life as a gift of the Spirit to the Church and for the Church becomes an ever greater sign of hope to the extent that it testifies to life's transcendent dimension. In today's multicultural and multi-religious world, there is also a demand for the witness of that evangelical fraternity which characterizes the consecrated life and makes it a stimulus to purifying and integrating different values through the reconciliation of divisions. The presence of new forms of poverty and marginalization ought to call forth that creativity in the care of those most in need, which has marked so many founders of religious institutes. Finally, the tendency to a certain self-absorption can find an antidote in the readiness of consecrated people to continue the work of evangelization on other continents, despite the decrease of numbers in various institutes. Since the commitment of ordained ministers and consecrated people is decisive, some mention must be made of the disturbing shortage of seminarians and aspirants to the religious life, especially in Western Europe. This situation calls for everyone to be involved in an effective pastoral program of promoting vocations. Whenever the person of Jesus Christ is presented clearly to young people, he inspires in them a hope that motivates them to abandon everything in order to follow him in response to his call and to bear witness to him among their peers. The pastoral care of vocations is thus a vital issue for the future of the Christian faith in Europe and in turn for the spiritual advancement of the very peoples who inhabit the continent. It is a challenge which must be met by a church which wishes to proclaim, celebrate and serve the gospel of hope. To create a much-needed pastoral program of promoting vocations, it is beneficial to explain to the laity the church's faith regarding the nature and dignity of the ministerial priesthood to encourage families to live as true domestic churches, so that in their midst the variety of vocations can be discerned, accepted and nurtured, and to engage in pastoral work aimed at helping young people in particular to choose a life rooted in Christ and completely dedicated to the church. 
and the certainty that the Holy Spirit is still at work today, and that the signs of His presence are not lacking. It is mainly a question of making the promotion of vocations a part of ordinary pastoral care. There is a need to rekindle a deep yearning for God, especially in young people, thus creating a suitable context in which generous vocational responses can be made. It is urgent that a great movement of prayer spreads across the ecclesial communities of the European continent, since changed historical and cultural situations demand that the pastoral care of vocations be perceived as one of the primary objectives of the entire Christian community. It is also indispensable for priests themselves to live and work in a way consistent with their true sacramental identity. For if the image they project is unclear or indifferent, how can they attract young people to imitate them? The contribution of the lay faithful to the life of the Church is essential. They have an irreplaceable role in the proclamation and the service of the Gospel of Hope, since through them the Church of Christ is made present in the various sectors of the world, as a sign and source of hope and of love. As full sharers in the Church's mission in the world, they are called to testify that the Christian faith constitutes the only complete response to the questions which life sets before every individual and every society, and they are able to imbue the world with the values of the kingdom of God, the promise and the guarantee of a hope which does not disappoint. Europe, yesterday and today, has experienced the presence of important and illustrious examples of such laypersons. Grateful mention must be made especially of those men and women who have and who continue to bear witness to Christ and his gospel by their service to public life and the responsibilities which this entails. It is supremely important to prompt and sustain specific vocations to serve the common good. Persons who, after the example and manner of so many so-called fathers of Europe, can be builders of tomorrow's European society, establishing it on a firm spiritual foundation. Equal esteem is due to the work carried out by Christian lay people, often in the hiddenness of daily life, through humble acts of service capable of proclaiming God's mercy to the poor. We must be grateful to these men and women for their fearless witness of charity and forgiveness, values which bring the gospel to the vast frontiers of politics, social life, the economy, culture, ecology, international life, family life, education, professional life, the world of labour and the caring professions. This calls for programmes of training capable of preparing suitable lay people to apply their faith in temporal affairs. These programmes, based on a serious introduction to the Church's life, and particularly the study of her social doctrine, ought to be able to provide them not only with teaching and encouragement, but also with adequate grounding in spirituality in order to strengthen their commitment lived as an authentic path to holiness. The Church is very much aware of the specific contribution of women in service of the Gospel of Hope. The history of the Christian community demonstrates that women have always had an outstanding place in bearing witness to the Gospel. Mention must be made of how much they have done, often in silence and obscurity, 
to receive and pass on the gift of God through physical and spiritual motherhood. Education, catechesis, the accomplishment of great charitable works, through the life of prayer and contemplation, and through mystical experiences and writings rich in the wisdom of the gospel. In the light of their splendid and powerful witness in the past, the Church expresses her confidence in all that women are capable of doing today for the growth of hope at every level. There are aspects of contemporary European society which represent a challenge for women's capacity to receive, share and bring to birth in love with determination and generosity. One thinks, for example, of the prevalent scientific and technical mindset which eclipses the areas of affectivity and emotional life, the lack of generosity, the widespread fear of giving life to new children, the difficulty of relating with others, and of accepting those who are different. It is in this context that the Church looks to women for the life-giving contribution of a new wave of hope. But for this to happen, the dignity of women must be promoted above all in the Church, because man and woman have the same dignity, having both been created in the image and likeness of God, and each has been filled with the gifts proper and particular to them. It is to be hoped that the full participation of women in the Church's life and mission will be fostered by making better use of their gifts and by entrusting them with ecclesial roles reserved by law to the laity. There must also be a due appreciation of women's mission as wives and mothers and their dedication to family life. The Church has not failed to raise her voice in denunciation of injustice and the violence perpetrated against women wherever and however this occurs. She demands that laws protecting women be enforced and that effective measures be taken against the demeaning portrayal of women in advertising and against the scourge of prostitution. She also expresses the hope that the domestic work done by mothers will be considered, like that of fathers, as a contribution to the common good, even through forms of financial retribution. Let us pray. Mary, Mother of Hope, walk with us. Teach us to proclaim the living God. Help us to witness to Jesus, the only Saviour. Make us helpful towards our neighbours, welcoming to the needy, workers for justice, impassioned builders of a more just world. Intercede for us, as we carry out our work in history, certain that the Father's plan will be accomplished. Dawn of a new world, show yourself Mother of Hope and watch over us. Watch over the Church in Europe, that she may be transparent to the Gospel, that she may be an authentic place of communion, living out her mission of announcing, celebrating and serving the gospel of hope for the peace and joy of everyone. Queen of Peace, protect humanity in the third millennium. Watch over all Christians, 
May they advance confidently on the path of unity, as a leaven for the harmony of the continent. Watch over young people, the hope of the future. May they respond generously to the call of Jesus. Watch over the leaders of nations. May they be committed to building a common home in which the dignity and rights of every person are respected. Mary, give us Jesus. Help us to follow him and love him. He is the hope of the Church, of Europe and of all humanity. He lives with us in our midst in his Church. With you we say, Come, Lord Jesus. May the hope of glory which he has poured into our hearts bear fruits of justice and peace. Amen. St. Benedict, pray for us. St. Bridget of Sweden, pray for us. St. Catherine of Siena, pray for us. St. Cyril and Methodius, pray for us. St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.